What's going on, everybody? You guys ready for a holiday weekend? We have a lot of people on vacation this week and running around the country enjoying time with family. Uh, we're glad that you're here today, uh, especially if you're visiting here. We uh, hope you found a church home in us. Uh, we would love to get to know you and be your friend. And we're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, and we're going to be talking about uh, a story today that threatened to disrupt the unity of the church. I just want to start out saying, guys, whenever Jesus came to earth, uh, part of his job and his purpose was to establish the church, and it was always his vision for his people to be a united family. Now, when you think church, do you think united family? I think a lot of us in this room would probably say that's not the first thing that comes to mind because we've been conditioned by what we've learned growing up. We've looked around. We've seen a lot of times not a great example of a united family in our church experience, right? I've heard some of your stories. Is that fair to say? Uh, but that was always the design. That was always the ideal. That was always the purpose. And Jesus needs us to be united as his people and as a family because this world is going to throw all kinds of garbage at us. And, and guys, if we're not careful, we can throw garbage at ourselves. We can just heap stuff on. Uh, you know, um, do you guys remember that illustration when Jesus was telling a story one time about a wise man and a foolish man? And he said, uh, a wise man builds his house on what? A rock, right? A wise man's like the one who hears my teaching and does what I say. That's like a person who builds their house on a rock. What, was, what did the foolish man build on? Sand, right? What's the difference between rock and sand? Well, when you're talking foundations, if I'm building on a rock, when I'm thinking rock, like that is a unified structure. That is something that can support some weight. But when I think sand, sand is just a bunch of little individual granules. There's no cohesion there. It, it's shifty, right? Like you step in, step in sand and your, your foot just kind of sinks down. Rock's different. It's solid. It's impermeable, right? That's the, what we want to build a foundation on. And it's important that the church be unified and that we as individuals be unified, that we're able to work out our differences, that we're able to work out problems, that we have the right attitudes that make us relationally cohesive. That relational cohesiveness in the church, that unity, that closeness is what will allow God to do great things through us as a community. Do you guys want to do some great things in the world? Yeah. Is the world a jacked up place? The world needs Jesus, right? The world's a dark place. The world needs light. You guys understand, the church is God's plan for making the world better. As we act like Jesus to one another and to other people, we bring heaven to earth. You guys realize that's God's plan for us? He wants us to bring heaven to earth before Jesus comes back and, and ultimately fixes everything. And he wants us to bring as many people with us as we can in our pursuit of being connected to God while we're in this broken mess of a world. But God is not going to be able to do that if we are not unified. Because you realize by the end of this year, we're planning on choosing another team to send on a church plant? By the end of this year, you guys realize that, right? We're going to be planting another church somewhere else. We are trying to come up with a way we can do this and scale it up where we can plant churches all over the place. 
And we're working on that. We got people that are thinking through that. We're looking at uh, how these church plants we've done are going and how, what can we learn and you know, how can we just grow in wisdom in this so we can do it better and better. We believe that's what God wants us to do. We believe that that's why God called us to do what we're doing. We believe he wants to reach people and he wants to use us to do it and this is how he's going to do it. But it's all going to fall apart if we are not unified. Because unity, guys, when you're building a church, when you're trying to build a movement, when you're trying to, to let God do something big through you, guys, when God starts doing big things through you, there's going to be weight that comes along with that. If we don't have a foundation that's solid, as we get bigger and as God does more through us, we're going to collapse under that weight if we're not unified. That's how important unity is. And we're going to look at a story today in the book of Acts. Man, the Bible is so cool because God knows what we're going to need today. He knows there's going to be a situation or a little church in Collinsville, Illinois, that needs to know how to deal with problems. So I'm going to put this story in there for them. We're going to look at a story today about a little church that's dealing with problems in the first century. Now what's crazy is things are going really good. Does anybody here feel like things are going good at the crossings? Are you sure? Okay, I'm just making sure. I feel like things are going good. Like I look forward to getting together with you guys every Sunday. I'm excited about the stories that I'm hearing of life change. I'm excited when I see people getting introduced that have been baptized nearly every week. We got somebody new that's, that's been a, become a Christian the week before. We have all these cool stories about people growing and developing and, and good things happening in our church. Amen? Amen, Amen right? I want to see more of that. You want to know what happens when good things start happening in a church? Guess. Problems. You want to know how I know that? It's exactly what happens to the church in Acts. In their period of greatest growth, man, like their golden age, when things were going so good, they hadn't even experienced a ton of persecution yet. I'm talking when things are still going good, when they're still like looked on favorably, and it even says in the Bible, things are going good. Guess what happened to them? They had some problems. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you do, you're going to have to learn to deal with problems in life, and we're especially going to have to learn to deal with them in the church. And so I'm going to give you six principles from Acts 6 on how we can deal with problems in the church. And I'm going to ask, uh, is Mike back there? <coughs> I'm going to ask Mike to read. We're going to put this on the screen for you guys. This is Acts 6. One through seven, you do have some notes in your bulletin. It's going to have most of the scriptures the rest of the time we're talking on there, but we'll put this first part on the screen for you. So, Mike, if you want to go ahead and read Acts 6, one through seven. Things were going well, and the number of disciples was growing, but a problem arose. The Greek-speaking believers became frustrated with the Hebrew-speaking believers. The Greeks complained that the Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. The twelve convened the entire community of disciples. We can solve this problem ourselves, but that wouldn't be right. We need to focus on proclaiming God's message, not on distributing food. So friends, find seven respected men from the community of faith. These men should be full of the Holy Spirit and full of <coughs> wisdom. Whoever you select will commission to resolve this matter. 
so we can maintain our focus on praying and serving not meals, but the message. The whole community, Greek speaking and Hebrew speaking, was very pleased with this plan. So they chose seven men, Stephen, a man full of faith and fully, full of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Greek-speaking convert from Antioch. These men were presented to the apostles, who then prayed for them and commissioned them by laying their hands on them. The message of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples continued to increase significantly there in Jerusalem. Even priests in large numbers became obedient to the faith. All right. Thank you, Mike. Guys, notice... At the very beginning, the first line on what he read is things are going well. That was the opening sentence to that whole section right there. Things are going well. And then right after that, but problems arose. That's how the text goes right there. It doesn't matter how well things are going. We're going to deal with problems sometimes. So here's six things that we can do uh, that we could see in this story that will help us deal with that. First of all, number one. When I'm facing a problem, I need to assess the situation accurately. I need to assess the situation accurately. Um, is there really a problem? If there is, what's the issue? The temptation, when things are going well, is to minimize or act like there's not a problem. That is the temptation a lot of the time. That's what happens a lot of time in life. In organizations, guys, this happens in the church, this happens in business, this happens in marriage, this happens uh, in, in just personal life. Uh, we, we sweep things under the rug sometimes because we think it'll just go away. The problems just go away when you sweep them under the rug. No, they don't. And it's the same in the church, guys. If we don't uh, admit the problem, it's not just going to go away. In Acts 6.1, this is right after it says... Things were going well. It says, but a problem arose. What's the problem? Well, the Greek-speaking believers became frustrated with the Hebrew-speaking believers because the Greeks complained that the Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Okay. Uh, when you were a widow in, in their society, you depended on your family for food. Um, when you were a pagan Greek and you became a Christian, Sometimes your family would disown you. So if your family, who you were depending on for food, disowns you because you've joined a new family, who should be taking care of your food? The new family, right? Uh, we have a lot of instructions about taking care of widows in the New Testament. That's why. Because a lot of these widows were disowned from their biological families when they would decide to follow Jesus. That's a pretty big sacrifice, right? So here these ladies are that need help. And they're not being taken care of. Is that a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. And it's a problem between two big groups of people that had a problem getting along anyway. The Hebrews and the Greeks. They didn't like each other, naturally. They had to make some <coughs> major sacrifices <coughs> to get along a lot of the time. One of the biggest problems in the first century was, was these two groups not getting along. Much of the New Testament is written because these two groups were not getting along. This threatened the whole unity of the church. This is one of those things that could turn into a fight that would lead to a church split. What would the devil like to happen? This little community is doing so good, guys. They're reaching so many people in Acts. They're reaching people hand over fist. They're just every single day people are coming to know Jesus. What would Satan love for, to happen in that little church? 
He'd love for them to start fighting over something and, and to, to be disunified and, and to become not one church, but two churches. That's what he would want. And then he would want those churches to get mad and start fighting and then those two churches to become four churches or six churches or whatever. And he would just want to, he would want to, he would want to split people up like the way we are today. Honestly, a lot of the state of the church in the world is just the work of Satan. Look around, guys. That's just evidence that we have been under attack as God's people for the last 2,000 years, the way things are today. We need healthy churches. We need churches that look like these churches in the book of Acts. We need churches that are solving problems this way. So these guys are faced with this problem. Was it a problem? Yes. Did they assess it accurately as a problem? Yes. Uh, it's not helpful, by the way, just side note, it's not helpful to ignore problems. It's also not helpful to get aggravated when you encounter problems. This is one of the things I struggle with. I struggle with patience. I struggle with uh, telling my face not to communicate my annoyance sometimes. Uh, I just do, like, and it doesn't help anything sometimes. What does the Bible say uh, a fool does? A fool is quick to get annoyed, is what the book of Proverbs says. I'm a fool sometimes when it comes to that stuff. It doesn't help anything. Whenever you encounter a problem, especially in the church, guys, you're just going to have to, and I'm going to have to, learn to deal with problems without getting annoyed about it. Because what does annoyance do? Okay? Another thing, another source of annoyance a lot of times when you're encountering a problem in the church, the, the problem is being encountered because somebody's acting like a fool. You know, somebody's done something foolish or somebody said something foolish. So there's bad behavior or sinful behavior sometimes. Um, don't get so caught up in the way you find out about the problem how you find out is not as important as that you find out. And what is important is that you respond in a godly way. So don't let your emotions take over. Um, but if you're aggravated, guys, and a lot of times when you're encountering a problem, it's a problem with another person. Okay, in some form or fashion, even if it's in the church, a problem with a ministry, there's usually a person in charge of that ministry that has some level of responsibility. It's usually a problem with a person on some level, if you have a problem with a person, if you are bothered with a person, the worst thing you can do is hide it. Let me say that again. If you are bothered with a person, the worst thing you can do is hide it. The worst thing you could do. What does the Bible say you're supposed to do if somebody sins against you? In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if somebody sins against you, you go and talk to them and tell them about it. Here's another principle from the Bible, guys. If somebody makes you mad, in Ephesians 4, this is on your notes, be angry, but don't sin. If somebody makes you mad, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down before you've dealt with your anger, otherwise you leave room for the adversary. You know what dealing with your anger looks like? Going and talking to that person you're angry with. Before the sun goes down, if you're aggravated with somebody, go and talk to them and work it out before the sun goes down, before the day is over. Deal with it quickly. Don't let it sit there. What is anger when you're mad at somebody and you just let it sit in your heart and you don't deal with it? What does it turn into? What's it? Bitterness. What does bitterness do? Bitterness divides people. Guys, you want to know what Satan's goal is to do to you as it relates to your participation in the church? He wants to isolate you 
and he wants to pull you away. And if he can't do that, he wants to make you arrogant so that you can get little followers on, among yourselves and then maybe you can pull a whole group of people away with your bad attitude. One of the things we have to guard against as a small church plant is attitudes because people, especially those that have been around for years, they don't realize their influence is, is felt in the congregation and their attitude has an effect on the congregation. When you're building a foundation, you don't want cracks in the rock, right? When bad attitudes and divisive attitudes get in there, it will crack the foundation of a church plant. The bigger you get, if you're divided and you're, you're not united and there's unhealth in the culture, the bigger you get. Guys, if I built a house on top of this little box right here, You think I could break that? Why? You calling me fat? I could break that, no problem. Now I could, put, I could put a little baby up here, no problem. We could take little baby pictures, no problem. But I ain't putting a grown man on this thing because it ain't big enough to support the weight. It'll support a little weight. It'll look fine as long as the little baby's sitting on it. But as soon as somebody with some weight sits on it, that thing's going to crack. Guys, that is, this is like disunity in a church right here. We can build a little bit on an ununified, poor foundation. But guys, the bigger we get, if the foundation's not solid, the more stuff that's going on, the more responsibility we have, it's going to crack and it's going to fall apart. That's what happens in every church that isn't unified at its core. Every single one of them. It will eventually either fall apart or it will just fall into a state of ineffectiveness where Satan doesn't even have to worry about it because they're not doing anything anyway. That's what happens to us when we're disunified. This is so important. In Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, make every effort to live at peace with everyone and be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. That bitter root is divisiveness. That bitter root is an attitude. That bitter root is when I get angry at somebody and I don't go work it out. I let the sun go down on my anger. I go home and I talk crap about them but I won't talk to them, right? That's not good. Accurately assess the problem by asking what's the problem, then also ask who does it involve, and you need to ask, do I need to go talk to them if I'm the one with the issue? Accurate assessment is gonna help you figure out how to best apply God's word to the situation. Guys, being a disciple of Jesus is really simple on one level. You take God's word and you apply it to your life. You apply it to the way you think. You apply it to the decisions you make. A lot of discipling, whenever I'm working with someone and trying to mentor them and teach them, a lot of that is just talking about their day and getting them to think through how to apply scripture to the decisions they made that day. How did you interact with your wife that, in that situation? What did you say? Was that Christ-like? Here's what the Bible says about that. Oh, that coworker cheated on you or, you know, cheated you out of something or whatever. How did you deal with that conflict? What does the Bible say about it? And just getting people to think through and learn to take God's word and apply it. That's all it is. 
It's that simple. Um, when it comes to church leadership and how to deal with problems in the church, all we want to do is take God's word and apply it to the situation every time. If we can do that well, we're going to be fine. And that's what they did in the early church. They, they applied God's word to this problem and, and they solved it in a godly way. The application of God's word is the solution in Proverbs 29, 18, where there is no word from God, people are uncontrolled, but those who obey what they have been taught are happy. The problem in Acts 6 didn't involve malicious intent. It really, I think, was just ignorance. They, they overlooked something and people were getting hurt as a result of something that probably wasn't malicious, but it was a problem. They assessed it accurately. They came up with a solution. They presented it to everybody and everybody was happy with the solution. And as a result, the church grew because of the way they handled this. At the end of it, um, they received guidance, this word from the Lord, from their church leadership, and they apply it and the church grows. Okay, so the problem doesn't kill them. It, it, it works out great. Secondly, to sustain, to sustain success when facing problems, we must, number two, acknowledge the problem openly. <clears throat> acknowledge the problem openly. What's the first step in recovery ministry? What is it? Admitting you got a problem. You go to AA, you go to NA. We got a lot of addicts here. I'm an addict. Uh, been clean for a while, but I know all about addiction, right? You will never be okay as long as you say, I, there's no problem. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not an addict. I don't really have a problem with that. It's just for fun. It's not really an issue. I can quit anytime I want to. Uh, as long as you keep saying stuff like that, it's not a big deal. It's only on weekends. Man, as long as you keep doing that, you're never going to get better. As long as you hide it, or if you just won't admit there's a problem, you're never going to get better. Acknowledging the problem openly is the first step to recovery. We call uh, refusal to acknowledge, what do we call that? We call it denial. We call it denial, right? We're just not going to admit that there's an issue to begin with. We're just going to deny it. That's not really a problem. That's not a big deal. Acts 6-2, the 12 convened the entire community of disciples and said, we could solve this problem ourselves. There they acknowledge, this is actually a problem. Okay, they're going to say it. Not only that, they say this is a problem to the whole church. They get everybody together and they acknowledge, we have heard you. Okay, how does that make the people feel that had a problem? To feel heard by church leadership. Okay, it, it makes them feel loved and cared for just to be heard. Some, it, in some situations, people feel ignored. They don't do that. They get everyone together, they admit there's a problem, and they do it with everybody present. Now, I just got to say, if you want to get better in life, you will never get better, you will never grow if you are hiding stuff, if you are not being vulnerable with your sin. And I can just tell you, uh, as someone that has struggled mightily with all kinds of sin, uh, that that's true. And the periods of stagnation in my life have been when I've been afraid to talk with others about what was going on in my life because I was ashamed of what I was struggling with and I was, I was afraid of what they would say or what they would do or how they would look at me. It was my own insecurity. I struggled with pornography. I struggled with alcohol. I struggled with drugs. I struggled with all kinds of stuff. And this has been since I've been a Christian. 
right? This isn't like BC, all of this. Some of this was since I've been a Christian. Guys, I've struggled with all kinds of stuff. And when I hide stuff that I struggle with, I don't get better. I just don't. I'm a messed up dude. Like I've got all kinds of garbage and trauma and stuff in my past. Um, I'm a messed up dude and I need help. I need people. But it's easy for me to put walls up and not to share stuff. And to pretend like I got it all together. Or to just put others ahead of me sometimes in my mind and justify uh, not being honest or not confessing. Right? It's easy for me to do that. But every time I give into that temptation to do that, I do not grow. I get stagnant. I get stuck. I get involved with things that I can't get past. Guys, in, the book, in, the, in James, um, this isn't on your notes, but it says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. In James 5.16, that's a verse for me that I have to constantly remember. It doesn't say confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you can be forgiven. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you can be healed. There's certain stuff that I struggle with that I can't get past without acknowledging it. And there's going to be stuff in your life, guys. If, there's, if you never talk about your marriage, if you never talk about uh, your struggles, if you never talk about um, you know, struggles you have at work or just struggles in your personal life, if you never talk about the stuff you're afraid to talk about, you're never going to get help. Is that scary? I got to tell you, it is. Like, for for me, like, I'm insecure. I care about what people think about me. It's scary to be vulnerable. But I've said this before, guys. When When I have been vulnerable, when it has been the most scary for me to be vulnerable, I never one time had somebody turn that around on me and and hate me because I was vulnerable. I have had, especially people of faith now, I'm talking about disciples of Jesus, when I've been vulnerable, people have embraced me and loved me, and they've, it's given them permission to be vulnerable too. And what I have found by talking about my mess and my garbage and my addiction and my sexual abuse and all the stuff I've been through is it gives other people permission to talk about their stuff. And the thing with Jesus, guys, we have people that come to this church sometimes on drugs. They come in on Sunday, they're looking for help. They come in here, they're on dope when they come in here on a Sunday morning. We have people that come in here that are involved in affairs. They, they come here and they're involved in, in stuff they know they shouldn't be involved in. We have people that come here um, that are involved in abusive relationships that they know are wrong. We have people that come in here that know they're messed up. But a lot of people that come in here that know they're messed up don't want to tell anybody. And, and sadly, a lot of those same people that come in here uh, thinking it's just them, they never do tell anybody and they leave and they never connect, not knowing that they're in a room full of people that are every bit as messed up as they are. The only difference is some of that messed upness we can put in the rear view because we put Jesus in our life. And part of putting Jesus in our life was talking about our messed upness with another person that loves Jesus. And that was honestly the scariest thing we've ever done in our lives. But it's also how God heals us. Because James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
Some of you are in here this room this morning, and God's call on your life is for you to access the healing that he has available to you. And you were afraid to do that because you would have to give up some semblance of control over that problem. God just may want you to ask, do you really have control over that problem? Who has control over that problem? And he's given you a word on how to handle that problem. It's to talk with somebody that loves Jesus and to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you can be healed. That's how you can get better. That's your choice, but that's God's word to you, okay? You're going to have problems in life, and as long as you hide them, you are never going to get better. In Scripture, admitting problems with the Spirit willing to deal with them opens the door for God to work. Look at this Scripture, and just, this is God's word to you today, okay? A man who refuses to admit his mistakes can never be successful. We'll say woman too, okay? A man or a woman who never admits his mistakes can never be successful, but if he confesses and forsakes them, he gets another chance. That's God's word to you. The crossings is full of flawed people and it's always gonna be. Any church you go to is gonna be. Any person you meet is gonna be a messed up person. We get healing when we acknowledge it. Thirdly, to sustain success after uh, or when facing problems. We must assert God's purpose relentlessly. We must assert God's purpose relentlessly. The church leaders in Acts 6 delegate to solve this problem. Uh, they say, that wouldn't be right. That wouldn't be right for us to go deal with this problem. We need to focus on proclaiming God's message, not on distributing food. Now, this is the leaders. This is the 12 apostles. These are the guys that are in charge of the early church that are saying this. They're saying, we see that there's a problem in the church, but it would actually be wrong of us to take time away from what we're doing, which is proclaiming God's word and prayer. Those are the two things they cite as what their primary activities were as apostles. They said it would be wrong for us to take away from proclaiming God's message and prayer to go and handle that problem, but that is a problem. So we're gonna let somebody else handle that who is qualified to handle that. Um, the solution must always support the, support the purpose. When we're talking about solving problems in the church, we're not going to solve a problem in a way that takes away from the primary purpose of our church. The primary purpose of our church is to be disciples who make disciples. That's our purpose in life. Our job is to connect people to God. It is to be connected to God and to connect people to God. That is our job in the world. We have a commission from our king to go out and make disciples. That's why we plant churches the way we do. That's why we structure uh, small groups the way we do. That's why we study the Bible with everybody that joins our church. We want to make sure every single person gets taken care of. We've got a lot of things that we put in place designed to support this mission that we're on together. And we don't ever want... When a problem comes in where we're having to face it, we don't ever want to solve that in a way that where we get our eye off the ball. We always want our mission to be about helping hurting people and connecting them to Jesus. That is what we believe God has called us to do. 
And so the solution has always got to support the purpose. We, Nehemiah, uh, if you've never read the book of Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament. It's about a guy who God called to rebuild the Jerusalem wall. And it's a really good illustration because Nehemiah had all these, I mean, it's an illustration for us today, but it's an actual story. It's actual history. It's something that happened. He, he got called by God to rebuild the Jerusalem wall after it had been destroyed. And he had all these people trying to distract him and get his eye off the ball. And, and the, the whole book of Nehemiah is just about how Nehemiah just relentlessly like attacked the purpose that God had given him, even though he had all these people come and trying to distract him. You know, other, other nations that wanted to take over Jerusalem for themselves were like trying, they didn't want the wall up because it would be security. He says uh, in, in Nehemiah 6.3, this is just an illustration from his life. He had some guys that were trying to call him away from his work. Right? Just, just to distract him. And it says, instead of going, I sent messengers back to them saying, I'm in the middle of a great work and cannot be interrupted. I'm not going down to meet with you. What is so important that I should suspend this great work we're doing to travel and see you? He says, man, I'm not getting my eye off the ball. You guys are trying to distract me with something. I'm not getting my eye off the ball. Guys, Satan is going to try to distract us with stuff. He's going to try to distract us with stuff. He's going to try to throw stuff at us that gets our eye off the ball. We can't get our eye off the ball. Who in here knows who the Apostle Paul is? Okay, pretty much everybody. If you've ever read about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he had a hard life. He was constantly getting beat up. Why were people constantly beating him up? Because he was talking about Jesus and they didn't like what he had to say. They didn't like that people were following Jesus. So he had people literally traveling around behind him trying to undo all of his work. He had, he had uh, times where he had to sneak out of cities because he was going to get killed. He, uh, he more than one time was nearly beaten to death. Like he had all kinds of bad stuff happen to him. He was by the end of his life a scarred, maimed dude because so many people tried to beat him down for, for talking about Jesus, but he never stopped. Even though Satan was throwing all this junk at him to get him to stop, all these distractions, all these problems, he never stopped. He just kept going and he kept going and he kept going. And he wrote this in Philippians 3. He says, no, dear brothers, I'm still not all that I should be, but I'm bringing all my energies to bear on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Man, he said this, I believe, from prison when he wrote this letter. And he's, he's literally chained to some guards and he can't get out and he's going to be taken and beheaded eventually. But he never got his eye off the ball. Man, if I'm chained to some guard and I can't go where I want to go and they're going to take me in an arena and chop my head off later that day, I would say that's a problematic day. I would maybe be thinking, how can I get out of this? Or how can I make these people leave me alone? Like, that's a problem. They're going to chop my head off. He just kept telling people about Jesus. He just kept telling them, man, even to their death. These guys that we look at as examples, they went to their deaths, not, not letting problems distract them. Problems like, I'm hanging on a cross and they're killing me. And they kept talking about Jesus. Isn't that crazy? But that's the example that we have. They, they were so committed to this purpose. It's crazy sometimes people get a little upset when you talk about purpose. 
It is, it is so part of the New Testament. When you look at the life of Jesus, he was all about making disciples. He was all about loving people. Guys, the church and the growth and all the stuff, planting churches, all this was his idea. Because he wants to touch the lives of people. We can't get our eye off that. Fourthly, to sustain success when facing problems, we must, number four, address the problem wisely. Address the problem wisely, it says in Acts 6.3. So find seven respected men from the community of faith. These men should be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. We can maintain our focus on praying and serving, not meals, but the message. Okay. They did not sweep the problem under the rug, as we've said. They dealt with it. They said it. They stated it. Uh, and then they deal with it in a wise way, a really wise way. They said, select seven respected men from the community of faith. What do we know about these seven men? They're disciples of Jesus because they're from the community of faith, right? Not only that, they're respected. Why are they respected in the community of faith? Because of their character. That's what gets you respect in the community of faith. Guys, in the church, it's not about your talent all the time. When, when, especially for ministry, if you want to like lead in the church or serve in the church, it's not about talent a lot of the time. You want to know what it's about? Attitude and heart. If you're somebody that's giving to criticize and complain, if you're somebody that's living a double life, if you're somebody that is uh, not practicing what you preach, that's not respectable. But somebody who is honest, who just has the characteristics of Jesus, where people would look and say, that person isn't overbearing, they're not bad-tempered, uh, they, they are kind, they're compassionate, they, they love lost people, you know, they seem to genuinely care. Like, those characteristics are respected in the community of faith. But if somebody is bad-tempered, if they're short, uh, if, if they're unwise in the way they make decisions, if they're given to just unholiness and stuff like that, that's not going to be respected. It was the same here, guys. These are guys that love Jesus. The ones that are uh, chosen to solve this problem, they're guys that love Jesus, and they're guys that the community around them, they have seen that their faith is authentic. These were not hypocrites. These were people that their faith was authentic. It says also, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They were known for being exemplary, right? These are the ones that are chosen by the apostles to take care of this problem. They were exemplary. We have the same philosophy here at the Crossings. If you want to serve in a ministry, we have standards, guys. You know the, the people we choose uh, to do like greeting and stuff. Did you guys know if somebody is living a double life or if their attitude is really unchristlike or things like that, did you guys know we will not allow them to serve in a ministry here, even if it's greeting? Did you guys know that? The reason we do that is because of this story right here. It's a principle that we learn from the Bible. I've been in some situations where um, there have been people that we have known within a church, like in some of the old churches I grew up in that were not very healthy, people that were known to be wildly involved in sin. But the people wanted them to come on Sunday, so they wanted to give them a job so that they would show up to church. You want to know what the job is they gave them? Teaching the kids. 
This person's going out and living a double life and getting hammered and lying about it and coming to church and pretending like everything's okay. Let's just have them teach our children, right? That doesn't make any sense. That, that's the kind of decisions that can get made when you're not looking in God's word for principles to guide your decision making. We've got to apply the principles we find in God's word to our decision making in the church. The reason we do things in leadership and ministry, the way we do them here is largely this principle right here. We want to choose people to serve in ministry positions within the church that are respected for their faith, that are known to be wise and full of the Holy Spirit. If you're living a double life, or if you're just generally not Christ-like, you shouldn't serve in a ministry in the church. Where people, because when you serve in a ministry in the church, even if it's any ministry, you represent the church to the world. When they look and they see you, even if it's opening the door and just greeting people on Sundays, when people are coming in from out there, they're looking at you and they're saying, I wonder if that person's real. Because I've been to so many places where people say this Jesus thing is real and everybody's fake. Some of you said that, didn't you? I did too. I, man, I remember before I became a Christian, I'd go into churches. I would be looking for the hypocrisy because I knew it was there. I was looking for something real, and I just knew it wasn't going to be in this church. And I would go in, and man, it didn't take me long. I'd find it. Until one time, I finally ran into a group of people where I couldn't find it. And it was that campus ministry down in Tampa that I've told you guys about. That's where I ended up becoming a Christian. It was because, and there were some there, right? But for the most part, the people in that ministry, in that campus ministry, were really serious about following Jesus. They weren't perfect. They struggled. Some of them more than others. Some of them, you know, were outliers and they really didn't care. But I could kind of tell. I found people that were real. And when I found people in a church that were real and not hypocrites, it made me feel like I could be real and maybe be with them too. It gave me hope. But when you go into a church and, and it's full of hypocrisy, and there's people serving in ministry positions that aren't full of the Holy Spirit and aren't full of wisdom, it just validates what a lot of people already think about a church, which is this is fake and everybody's a hypocrite. We want to guard against that. The way we guard against that is by doing what they do right here in Acts 6. They also chose men from the affected group. They chose men from the Greeks. It was Greek-speaking widows that had a problem. They chose Greek men to take over this issue and take care of it. They chose seven men. Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Greek-speaking convert from Antioch. These men were presented to the apostles who then prayed for them and commissioned them by laying their hands on them. All those are Greek names, okay? Every one of those was a Greek man. They were chosen to handle this issue for the Greek-speaking widows. They got people that they knew were going to be passionate about this problem to deal with it. They got men that were connected to these widows to deal with it. When you have a passion to solve a problem, you're probably the best person a lot of times to deal with it, so long as you're full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. God will take somebody full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom who's also full of passion for a particular problem and he will use you to do amazing things. Some of you guys in here have particular passions in mind even. You have ministries that you believe God has called you to. I just want to encourage you, if you are not yet full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that may be something to work on. You guys know how you can get more of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? 
Any, any ideas? Just, this is just a side note. In, in James, you pray for more wisdom. Uh, it says in James 1, right in the opening, if any of you is without wisdom, you should pray and ask God for it. He'll give it to you. Jesus also says in the book of Luke, if you want more of the Holy Spirit, he says to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, God's going to give that to you. Um, another thing here, though, is they lay their hands on these guys. When they uh, present these men to the congregation as the ones they're going to um, use to help this problem, what does laying hands on these guys represent to the congregation? Well, it represents the approval of the leadership. It also represents the hearing of the church leadership, right? They heard the problem. They dealt with it. They're presenting these guys as the solution to it. They're going to delegate uh, with church authority uh, the, the ministry that these guys are going to go uh, take. And they, they pray over them. They lay their hands on them and they pray over them and they commission them for ministry. This is also the basis for if you've ever heard of ordination in churches, being ordained as a minister. This is where that comes from. Uh, we get that tradition from the early church. Whenever they were going to commission someone for ministry, uh, the leaders in the church would get together and they would lay their hands on that person they were commissioning and they would pray God's blessing on their future ministry. Uh, we see this a few times in the New Testament. This is one of the things that uh, Paul did for Timothy uh, with the elders of the church as they laid, laid their hands on Timothy and prayed over him to commission him for ministry. So we see that here. The entire church is informed that this is the way we're solving this problem. Uh, it involved exemplary disciples and it involved delegation. And that's how they move forward here. Wise leaders will appoint people who will help with a solution in a godly way. That's what happens in a church. As problems arise, uh, identify it, assess it. Is it really a problem? Guys, sometimes the problems that come up in a church, I'm not, sometimes they're really not problems, okay? Uh, sometimes we just need to adjust our attitudes. But when stuff shows up that really is a problem, we need to apply God's word to it. And, and a part of that uh, is going to be appointing people to deal with it that are qualified. To sustain success when facing problems, number five, we must applaud the solution collectively. It says in uh, verse five, the whole community, Greek speaking and Hebrew speaking, was very pleased with this plan. So they say, okay, here's the problem, here's the solution. Everybody's happy with the way this was handled. The whole community heard the solution and agreed that it was good. The whole community had gotten past their disagreement and they united around a solution that was good for everyone. Now, I said it earlier, guys, but again, unity in the church is not simply a nice thing to have. Unity in the church is essential. It's essential. If you don't have unity in the church, the church is going to fall apart. These little attitudes and these things that get introduced into the church have got to be guarded against. Whenever we see sources of disunity in the church, part of our job as church leaders is to minimize the effect as best we can of disunity because it doesn't take but a little bitty bit to mess up a church really, really bad. It's got to be guarded against. This is largely attitudinal. 
And when you have a bad attitude, you're dangerous to the church. Especially the more influential you are. You're dangerous when you have a bad attitude. So we've got to keep our attitudes right. Unity and love for one another is what Jesus says is going to convince the outside world that we're really his disciples. You guys realize when disunity comes into the family of God, you're telling the outside world this is just like everybody else. Do we want to be a source of hope? We got to be unified. Do we want to be a source of light? We got to be unified. Do we want to be a social club? that doesn't really make a difference, well, then we don't need that unity stuff. We can just have a club that meets on Sundays and goes out to eat before the Baptists do. <laughs> Unless Jake is preaching. <laughs> just kidding, Jake. Just kidding. <clears throat> um, God loves it when his people are unified. Says in Psalm 133, 1, what's the matter? Are you lying? Okay. Uh, oh, how wonderful, how pleasing it is when God's people all come together as one. Um, God is happy when we're unified. He loves it when we're unified. He loves it when we're together. It makes him happy. But when we're disunified, guess who it makes happy? Man, it ain't God. But it sure makes Satan happy. Because Satan knows if he, can, if he can cause cracks in the foundation of our unity, we may build something for a little while, but eventually it's just going to all fall apart. And he's just going to rejoice because when it all falls apart, all the good work of touching the lives of people goes away. And it's left to somebody else to do it. Now, God's going to make it happen. You know, in the Bible it says... He could even make the rocks start singing his praise and the trees and stuff. He doesn't even need us to praise him. He can just tell them rocks and them trees to get to work. He could probably tell them rocks and them trees to go make disciples. Who are they to say no? We get to do what we do. We get to do what we do. We get to do what we do. And that needs to be our attitude. Shouldn't I have to, man? Do you know how fun it is to see people's lives change because of Jesus Christ? To know you had some little bitty part in it? That's fun. That's, that's, that's fulfilling, man. You've got this burning desire to do something with your life, and suddenly you align your passion with God's purpose for you. That's fulfillment. That's full life. That's when you figure out what you're really here to do. When you start living life the way you were designed to live it, life is good. But as long as you try to live in a way you weren't designed to live it, life is not good. And a lot of times the stuff we look to for comfort is not what we were designed to look to for comfort. You get on board with Jesus and you start doing this Jesus thing in a way that's real, and man, he's going to mess up your life, but he's going to mess it up in a good way because that life you're living now, it ain't as good as you think. Some of you in here, you know it ain't good, and you've just been hiding. God wants to call you out of that. He wants you to come together with his people through vulnerability 
and talking about what's really going on in your life and getting connected and getting help. Oh, how wonderful, how pleasing it is when God's people all come together as one. Be part of the one. Last, we'll close on this. To sustain success when facing problems, we must, number six, anticipate God blessing abundantly. God's blessing follows their working this out in a godly way. In Acts 6-7, says the message of God continued to spread and the number of disciples continued to increase significantly there in Jerusalem. Even priests in large numbers became obedient to the faith. Guys, the work of God never stopped. The work of God continued. The work of God despite this problem that threatened to break up the church, continued. And the church continued to grow, and they continued to make disciples. <clears throat> Not only that, it says even priests in large numbers became obedient to the faith. Do you guys know who the priests were? They ran the temple. The early Christians were telling people that the priests shouldn't have a job anymore. Their, their job is obsolete. We don't need to go to the temple to make those sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need to do all that temple stuff because Jesus took care of all that stuff. You know they didn't like that? They didn't like getting told they were obsolete. They didn't like that at all. They were some of the harshest critics of the early church. Do you have anybody in your life that is a harsh critic of the church or of Jesus? Somebody that you love that is a harsh critic of the church or of Jesus. There is still hope for them. Because even in, even in a, a broken world, God can take a church that is healthy and he can turn the harshest critic into a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. When the church is unified, when the church is together, when the church is handling problems in a godly way, God can build an amazing thing on a solid foundation. He can build a family so beautiful that even the harshest critic that you love can have a change of heart because they see something different. Guys, this unity, again, it goes all the way back to what Jesus said. He said, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He was talking to disciples. He wasn't talking to the whole world. He said, I'm going to give you a new command. I want you disciples to love other disciples. I want you to be close like a family. And I want the outside world to see something different in the relationships you have with your spiritual family in my name. I want them to see that it's okay for you to bring your brokenness to me. I want them to see that it's okay for you to bring your shame to me. I want them to see that it's okay for you to bring your sin and darkness and all the garbage that you're scared anyone would ever find out. I want you to bring it all to me, and I want you to give it to me, and I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it. One of the things that the early church did every single Sunday is they celebrated communion. And the reason they celebrated communion is because every week they needed that message. We serve a God who takes our garbage and he takes it onto himself. He takes our sin onto himself. He takes our darkness onto himself. He takes all the mess in our life onto himself and he takes it. 
where we don't have to shoulder it any further. We don't have to be held responsible for it. Guys, when we sin, we are uh, sinning against God. It's an affront to the holiness of God. Who we want to be close to, we want to have a relationship with, we cannot have a relationship with a holy God while covered in sin. Jesus takes our sin onto himself. He gives us all of his light. By his blood, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed when we put our faith in him. He does expect something from us. He expects us to repent and to put our faith in him and to follow him as king. If you've ever gone to a church and they have said, God doesn't expect anything from you, that's not exactly true. I will say God will meet you wherever you are. If you're here today and you're struggling, if you're here today and you're high, if you're here today and you're involved in something you know you shouldn't be involved in, yeah, God will meet you there, but God will not tell you it's okay for you to keep going and getting high. God will not tell you it's okay for you to keep cheating on your husband or wife or to keep in that addiction or to keep whatever it might be, to keep being lazy or to, to keep not caring about lost people or whatever it might be. You can't keep living in sin and be right with God. He's going to call you to change. But what he will do, guys, is he will take all your garbage onto himself. And he doesn't just take it, man. He takes it out back and he, he kills it. Wouldn't it be nice if you knew your sin was dead? That darkness that you're carrying on you right now, wouldn't it be awesome if it was just dead? Guys, you realize that's what he does, right? He kills it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. See, he's the author of life. He took our garbage onto himself and he died. And our garbage gets to die when he died. But guess what? He didn't stay dead. Because he's greater than that. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Lord of light. He takes your sin and he takes it out back. And he kills it where you don't have to worry about it anymore but you got to repent. When we take communion, we look and say, is there something in my life that God would not have in my life? I need to examine myself. I'm going to remember today that Jesus cared so much about this that he literally bled and died and had his body broken on a cross. That's how much he cares, right? But he did it, and he did it to give you a chance. Every week we get together and we get to be reminded, I've got a chance, I've got a chance, I've got a chance. I need to turn to him. You were not meant to turn to him on your own. That's why the church is here. What have we said all this morning? If you're struggling with something, if you're carrying darkness, what do you need to do? It is not just you and God. It's you and God's family. God's going to help you through his family. You need to talk to somebody that loves Jesus about your darkness and that's going to be part of how you can get help repenting, okay? We'll talk more about that in a second. I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to sing a song. Uh, during that, we'll pass communion out. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken. The juice represents his blood that was spilled. We want to remember we serve a God whose body was broken and whose blood was spilled so that my sin could be saved, or so that I could be saved from my sin. My sin could be killed, right? Let's pray. 
God, thank you for bringing us together today. Uh, thank you for this assembly. Thank you for these people. You are working on our hearts today. Help us to repent of sin. Help us to not be afraid to get help where we need it. Help us to do what we need to do to repent, Lord. We were never meant to do this on our own. Help us not to get caught in a trap where we feel like we just have to white knuckle it through things without talking to somebody. Help us to get help. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you guys uh, one more time. We have class 101 coming up next Saturday. Uh, that is June the 3rd. That's going to be here at the church starting at 9 o'clock. I know it says from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. on the flyer. We usually get out earlier than that. Um, so it'll probably be closer to 1230 or 1. Uh, we'll just kind of see how things go. We are going to serve lunch for that. Um, so we need to get a count ahead of time if we can. Uh, and the reason <clears throat> that we do this class, the way that we do it is anytime somebody wants to join the church, we want to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of expectations. And here's exactly what we expect from members. Here's what we teach. Here's our philosophy of ministry. Here are all the different things we offer. Here are different ways for you to plug in. Uh, and guys, we are not a church where if you join, you just sit in the pew and there's nothing expected of you. Um, we've got different things that we believe God in the Bible calls us to as believers that we need to be concerned with. And so we don't let just people join the church because they say they want to. We want to sit down and look at God's word. We want to have you look at your life and say, is this something that I'm living according to? Uh, and guys, we tell people sometimes no, that want to join the church because they're living outside of what a disciple's life should reflect. Um, we do that because we want to maintain unity within the church. It's what they did in the early church too. Okay, where do we get our ideas for how to do this stuff? We get it from the Bible. We just want to take the Bible and do what it says, right? It works better that way. God knows what he's talking about. So if you haven't gone through this class yet and you want to be a member of the church, you need to come next, Sunday, uh, next Saturday if you can. We do offer this uh, quarterly, so if you can't make it this go-round, uh, you can come the next time. But I say that because this is our ideal. This last passage on your notes from Acts 4, this is our ideal. This is what we're shooting for. In our church, we want it to look like this. It says, the whole group of believers was united in their thinking and in what they wanted. None of them said that the things they had were their own. Instead, they shared everything. And God blessed all the believers very much. Guys, I truly believe that in the next few years, God is going to do some amazing things through the crossings. We've got four churches right now. Things are going well. Uh, we've got a lot of cool things happening, a lot of awesome stories that are coming out of our different ministries. We've got plans for more ministries in the future. I was just on the phone with an attorney yesterday about getting our rehab stuff set up here. Uh, so that's happening. There's stuff happening here locally in Collinsville. There's stuff happening in other places. We've got a, a, a large building expansion going on in Wentzville. We've got another one in uh, Interbelt. We've got Columbia that's looking for a building. We're going to be sending a team out like next year. Guys, there's just all kinds of cool stuff happening. But as God continues to do amazing things through us, guys, this is all going to rise or fall based on the unity of our relationships. God will build something amazing on a rock, but he won't build anything amazing on sand. Are we going to be a rock or are we going to be sand? It really is up to our attitudes and the way we relate to one another. 
Let's remember that as we go through our week, okay? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song and close out. God, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us together. I pray you bless our holiday. God, we love you, and it's so good to be together. In Jesus' name, amen.